Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 2, verse 13. Great passage, and I think I'm going to forget. So uh, we're going to talk about Jesus driving out the corrupt money changers from the temple. And I know a lot of churches say, uh, well, you can't sell anything at, in a church building, including the overpriced crunch bars that the band makes high school kids sell to raise money for the band and stuff like that. I don't think that's the same thing myself. Uh, my personal preference is I'm not crazy about uh, people selling anything in this room, especially if I'm speaking, you know, just because it's distracting. Uh, so we've tried to say, you know, kids are going to do legitimate fundraisers, stuff like that. Do it in the foyer or, or better yet, off kind of in front of the offices. But that's, there's no secret messages here to the high school kids. You shouldn't be selling stuff that you're, they force you to sell or for the football team, stuff like that. I don't think that's the same thing. And if you don't see the same thing when I'm done with this, come directly up here because I have totally failed to explain this passage to you very well. Uh, who exactly is Jesus? Very important question. Ultimately, everybody's got to answer that like before God. And over the centuries, there have been a lot of answers given. But I think probably two of the most popular incorrect answers have been, number one, Jesus was a bad guy. Now, that's not very popular today, and even people on the far left are uh, loathe to say that, even if they actually think it. However, our passage today in John 2, we're going to see the religious leaders of Judaism basically say Jesus is a bad guy. Now, um, if you take the New Testament gospel seriously at all, you realize that's not just absurd, but it's heretical and blasphemous. So that's one, but that's one opinion, and that's been popular through human history. Most of the major religions other than Christianity go to that, not necessarily, but uh, most many people have held that view. Number two, okay, watch this, Trey. If Jesus was a bad guy is one incorrect answer. Another answer, which is also incorrect, is Jesus was a good guy. Jesus was a nice guy. And he was kind of a mixture of uh, Mr. Rogers and Oprah in one person. I mean, a very well-meaning, nice, uh, soft-spoken, good deed-doer, social reformer. Uh, now, I think that view, Jesus was a nice guy, is a lot better than the first one. Jesus was a bad guy. But it's not nearly good enough. Uh, it, it still misses the target by light years. It's absurd and it, too, is heretical and blasphemous. And our passage this morning will show you why that's true. Because we are continuing our series through the life of Christ, A through Z. We come to letter H, which stands for harsh house cleaning. And Jesus had to get in some people's face to make a point. He doesn't look much like Mr. Rogers or Oprah in this passage. Uh, he claims and demonstrates that he was, and he is, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, incarnate in human flesh, in short, the God-man Savior, and any answer other than that is dead wrong. That's what we're going to see today. Let's look uh, uh, at uh, look up to God to uh, illumine our time here. The Holy Spirit who inspired this text must illumine it for anything good to happen, because this isn't just about facts, it's about truth. And this is really spiritual brain surgery time, in my opinion. We try to Put a little sugar on the oats uh, to make it uh, more palatable. But, uh, you know, bottom line is, if you can read this passage, understand what it means, believe it, and apply it, 
Then we've got uh, mission accomplished. If anything short of that happens, including right now, if you're not wanting to listen, that's really a problem. So I'm praying the Holy Spirit will make us all teachable, including me, and that he will uh, illumine the text so we can see what it means in context. And that's valuable on its own because James and Pastor Brad aren't always going to be available. Now, James, you can get James in any country in the world at 1-800-JAMES-MITCHELL. Except North Korea. They, they recently pulled the plug on that because you were doing too much damage to the system over there. But uh, you can't always get a professional Christian to tell you what this stuff means. But if you can read your own Bible, Trey, what's that worth to you? It's worth a lot, right? So that's goal number one. Let's interpret the text in context so that 12-year-olds and 93-year-old people can read it and understand it. And then let's talk about what some implications are so you can apply it. So that's what we're going to try to do today, God willing. But let's remember those uh, as we pray for teachability for people who protect and serve like our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters. And Murray, I'm not going to, you're going to still come home every weekend to come to church, right? From Stillwater, no, you're going to find a good Reformed Presbyterian church, right? Uh, in uh, Stillwater. Um, now, J.B. Bond is a friend of mine and he has a Bible church there. So you might want to check that out too. His name is James Bond, and he was a foot, assistant football coach at Mississippi State for many years before he went to Dallas Seminary and became a, uh, a pastor, but he goes by J, JB because it's just too distracting to be James Bond, you know, uh, for various reasons. But he's, he's a really cool guy. I think you like him, but I'm going to ask you to pray for us in that direction, okay? And I appreciate the reference to Dr. McCoy, but you know what? We're friends now, Murray. Uh I, and that's funny, I remember distinctly the first day of class last fall, when right before I'm going into the new class to find out, I've got friends like Dustin and Murray waiting for me, I see Murray walking by my office with the old textbook under his arm that he probably had from Amber or Ashley. And I thought, oh great, I'm going to have to tell him they've changed the textbook, he's going to have to spend $90 or something for a textbook. So for some reason I remember that, but listen, we're good enough friends now, you don't have to call me Dr. McCoy, just Dr. Brad is good. <laughs> Okay, that never changes, right? <laughs> Abstract thought warmer-uppers. Why did the cookie go to Duncan Regional Hospital? Because he was feeling crummy. Here's the next one. Why was the baby strawberry crying? Because his mom and dad were in a jam. I'm going to do the next two anyway. <laughs> what can you use to light up a soccer stadium? A soccer match. Right, Dennis? Yeah. He already knew that. Last one. Hold your applause. What did the police officer say to his belly button? You are under a vest. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at the, the life of Christ A through Z. We're in John 2. Turn to John 1. Uh, Joe read verses 1 through 5 of John as our call to worship. And I love the gospel of John. And I love the first 18 verses called the prologue. Just magnificent truth in there. And uh, I'm using the first and kind of toward the end of that as one of our major theme ideas here. In the beginning, the Word, which is the title for Jesus here, Dustin, as the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning, the Word already was. He's before the beginning. He's transcendent. He's outside of time, space, matter, and energy. Okay, And the Word was with God the Father because the Word is a different person than God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. 
And the Word was God. He wasn't God the Father. He was God in His character. He was deity. So really, a paraphrase would be, in the beginning, the Word, Jesus already was. He was with and a distinct person from, but in perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit. And He was full deity, right? Drop down to verse 14. And the Word ultimately became flesh, virgin conception, nine months later, virgin birth, and tabernacled, skene, was the incarnation of God in human form among us, and we, John and the other apostles, saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Without grace, you're not going to get truth. Without truth, you're never going to understand and respond to grace. There's no substitute for victory and war, and there's no substitute for truth and grace in the Christian life in the local church. We live in an existential society where we want motivational speakers to pump us up and activities to make us feel good about ourselves. What we need is truth so we can live grace. And uh, I could teach at a third grade level. I have to do that sometimes at Cameron. But uh, if you were only going to receive third grade temptations and challenges and trials, I would teach at that level. You're not. If you're 12 years old, you're going to in middle school, you're going to face adult-sized temptations. You need adult-sized truth. If your kids don't understand me, take them to lunch or take them home for lunch and explain the passage now. Help them, okay? Uh, help James if he's teaching something in youth group your kids don't understand. Help them. Help us. Don't, don't, don't fight this thing, okay? Uh, yeah, I like that diagram because you see the Trinity there in the upper left. Christ taking on humanity without ceasing to be deity, one person, two natures. And we're looking basically there, Trey and Julie. I don't get to pick on you as often as you used to. You know, A through Z is all about that. And so this is really, uh, I think, helpful. I like to put it on a map to emphasize real places, real people, real events. What does A stand for? Angels announce the supernormal pregnancy of John the baptizing Jewish prophet. Everybody else calls him John the Baptist, but he wasn't a Baptist. Okay? Um, first to Zacharias in the temple, and then the supernatural virgin conception to Mary, and later to Joseph in Nazareth. So we're in Jerusalem and Nazareth for A, right? B, birth in Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? House of bread. I'm the bread of life. Micah, 700 B.C., said the Messiah be born in the city of David in uh, Bethlehem of Judea. C stands for what? Carpentry career. What Jesus do from age 12 to age about 30, as Luke says. Tecton, yeah, he was a tecton, a skilled worker in wood and or stone in and around Nazareth. What, what does D stand for? Dove descends at the Duncan, John the baptizing Jewish prophet, who's the forerunner predicted in Isaiah and Malachi. In the Old Testament, uh, Jesus identifies with his ministry, and they pass the baton, as it were. What happens? And the righteousness of Christ is declared at the baptism because the voice of God the Father. So we don't know in detail what Jesus did from 12 to 30. We know he's referred to as the tectons, as the carpenter. But we know he's perfectly righteous because God the Father says so at the baptism, right? So the righteousness is declared there. E stands for what? Yeah, enemy entices. So the last Adam, not in the Garden of Eden, but in the Judean wilderness, is going one-on-one with the ultimate spiritual adversary and demonstrates his righteousness. So he's good to go, ready to launch, right? Locked and loaded for the ministry. Then what happens after the temptation? 
Jesus goes back to where John's baptizing, and John starts funneling disciples to him. And what title does John use for Jesus two times in that passage? What does he call him? The Lamb of God. We're going to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. You have Passover lambs. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So F is first followers. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Uh, what's the next letter? G? What happens in G? Great guests at a wedding reception. The first miracle, but done very subtly, because Jesus is wanting to wait for the grand opening, as it were, of his ministry to happen in Jerusalem in and around this Passover. And we're in letter H. We're at letter H today. Harsh house cleaning, and you're going to see Jesus was not Mr. Rogers, nor was he a bad guy in doing what he does here. Um, but he'd have to be the Messiah to legitimately do this. Look at, and by the way, what we're doing here, if you analyze the overall ministry of Christ, the first phase is once he gets started, let's, let's, let's preach the kingdom. Let's preach me as savior. Let's do big miracles. So Israel will know that the Messiah is on the ground, right? Big miracles on purpose to confirm what he's saying about himself until the Pikes Peak when the religious leaders say, hey, pay no attention to this guy because he's doing miracles in the power of not God the Spirit, but Beelzebub and Satan. That's the unpardonable sin, categorical rejection, and saying the Messiah is the Antichrist, that he's not a... Uh, the second person of the Trinity, but they satanically possess false prophet. That's a capital crime under the Old Testament law, false prophet. So from now on, any miracle he does can and will be used against him to prove their point that he's a satanically possessed false prophet who can do miracles. So the, the ministry changes. He still does miracles at times in, in public places in response to faith in need, but he's primarily preparing the disciples for what's going to happen, which is the death and the ascension now knows all that's seen, but uh, you have those those two phases. So the passage we're looking at today really kind of starts in earnest this first phase of his ministry, and he's going to refer to the ultimate miracle to start that off his resurrection, as we'll see. But look at verse thirteen, the setting of this passage, the Passover. This would have been in spring of thirty A.D. according to Harold Honer's chronology. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is the grand opening of phase one of the ministry. We're in the temple complex in Jerusalem. We're about three years before the cross. Passover, as you probably know, goes back to Moses about 1,500 years before this. Exodus 12, the last of the of the uh, uh, incentives for Pharaoh to people out of slavery was the death of the firstborn. And to make a long story short, the Passover was all about the blood of the sacrificial lamb delivered from the death angel. Now, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But as the Lamb of God, he is our Passover. Everything that was anticipated by the Passover, specifically in the sacrificial system, generally is fulfilled by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the gospel. How do we know what the gospel is? First Corinthians 15 says, let me tell you what the gospel is. You know, it's the first thing I said when I came to Corinth the first time. It's what I say every time. Christ died for our sins according to scripture. He's buried. Burial means you're dead. Your room temperature. Uh, he rose again on the third day and he was seen. It's the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, apart from a resurrection, you have no savior. 
apart from a sacrificial atoning death, you have no Savior. Uh, Islam, as we're learning on Wednesday nights, teaches that Allah would never let a great prophet like Jesus die of crucifixion. And in fact, Allah didn't let Jesus die at all. He just ascended to heaven. So, And in fact, most Muslims think that what happened was someone who looked, the, the dirty Jews, as they would say, condemned Jesus and wanted to crucify him. But in the confusion after the uh, uh, the conviction and on the way to Golgotha, uh, somebody who looked like Jesus was mistakenly crucified. And most Muslims believe that was Judas. So as uh, Ray and I were talking about recently, ironically, uh, you've got Judas dying for Jesus and Jesus not dying at all, right? Uh, Muslims think Jesus was a nice guy. Islam does not teach Jesus was a bad guy. I said there's two two major views. They think he's a nice guy. They think he was an uh, Islamic prophet who was misunderstood. And the, the, uh, the followers after his death after his departure, not his death, because he didn't die according to them, changed this whole story, and Paul turned him into God. You know, So that's what that is. But here's the saying. We're in Jerusalem, which is a real place. We're there for the Passover, which is all about Jesus, and he's not unaware of that. It is one of the three required feasts, so of course he's going to be there. And as I've already said, uh, you can't help, but if you remember what you read in John 1, now Dustin... John kind of assumes you've read John 1 before you've read John 2. Now, we kind of jump and jump around. But John the Baptist says, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God. Let's go to the Passover where you sacrifice a lamb that represents the Messiah who's going to be the Lamb of God. So it all kind of lines up. So that's the setting. Uh, and that's really uh, the, the essence of the whole thing, that uh, Jesus is the fulfillment and the completion of the sacrificial system. I think I was talking to Ed recently that there's a, a plethora of denominations out there where they would talk to the post office. Now, Tankwood Bible Fellowship is a strange animal, and not everybody's going to understand us or, or, or want to plug into this, and I get that. But, you know, I say my elevator pitch for TBF is TBF is a group of born-again believers in Jesus from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Christ, and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually by focusing on the basics of Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, and world missions. Now, there's like 36,000 denominations according to our religion textbook. I think it's like 36,212 last time I counted. That's a joke. But there's a lot of denominations out there. But historically, although some are so far to the left now, they don't believe anything worth believing. Some are so far to the right, they've turned it into salvation by works. But the vast majority of us have the gospel at the very center of their pie chart, and then they have their distinctives we can debate about, including their eschatology chart, you know. But one thing no Christian group has done that I'm aware of, there's probably been somebody claiming to be Christian who's done it, since uh, the ministry of Christ, nobody sacrifices animals anymore. Even though there's a whole book in the Bible that tells you how to sacrifice animals at a central sanctuary. It's called Leviticus, right? It's in the Bible. But that has been superseded. Do airplanes contradict the law of gravity? No, aerodynamics overrides gravity in an airplane, right? Uh, is the law wholly just and good? You bet it is. But it was partial, preliminary, and pointed to something, someone much greater, right? So we're, we're reading about Old Testament events written by a New Testament author, and Jesus celebrating the Passover is meaningful for a plethora of reasons. Now let's go to the big problem. Verse 14. 
And when Messiah, at the beginning of his public ministry, after thousands of years of prophecies that they should have been looking for him, and John the Baptist has told the nation he's on the ground, he finds the system totally corrupt. Can you believe people could corrupt religion to make money? It, it happens, man. Uh, and he found in the temple, and by temple we don't mean the building, but the temple precincts, I'll show you what that looks like in a minute. Those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, those were sacrificial animals, uh, just generally, and they also need lambs for the Passover specifically, and money changers seated at their tables, okay? Um, got a problem. The righteous religion of Moses, holy, just, and good, albeit partial and preliminary, had become big business, and it's corrupt, generating lots of money and fame for the religious leaders. They're selling sacrificial animals, but only after a money exchange, Turns out that uh, the religious leaders decided that Roman and other Gentile currencies had spiritual cooties on it. So you couldn't buy your sacrificial animals. You could bring them, but it was too inconvenient for most people. So you come to the temple complex for the Passover and also do some other sacrifices. You need animals. So in order to pay for your sacrificial animals, you couldn't use your money you used in Galilee, the Roman money. You'd have to exchange that for Jewish temple money. And they were making big money on the exchange there. Plus, you can only use approved animals that the priests had approved. And the priests would buy low and sell high. They'd buy kind of crummy animals that really shouldn't have been approved. They'd buy it for one shekel. They'd approve it and make it efficient. You have to have one of these animals to do your sacrifice. And they charge you ten shekels. So they're making huge profits They've turned this thing, which is supposed to drive people to Christ, uh, so they can make big money. And uh, this is noxious and uh, sinful, right? It's a bad problem. Now, we're talking about events in the Old Testament period, because the Old Testament goes through the day of Pentecost shortly after the ascension, uh, even though this is New Testament truth for us and important. And you know, they're, they're waiting for the, the Messiah to come. And the Old Testament was really spirituality on training wheels, never designed to save, but designed to drive you to a need for a Savior. Uh, partial, preliminary pointing to Christ. That's why Romans says Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes, right? And the people who should be looking for Christ for righteousness are trying to generate their own. I won't go into detail here, but uh, last uh, Wednesday night, uh, Nabil Qureshi in uh, the Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus video, talked about the covenants. What you need to know about the covenant is there's a foundational covenant given in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 to Abraham about the land, seed, and the blessing, which is the foundation for everything else. There's a conditional covenant built on that, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, partial preliminary pointing to whom, right? Which included animal sacrifices, which have been fulfilled and no longer needed now. And we're loving under the new covenant, right? Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. So we're looking at what we might say is an archaic practice, but it's important for us to understand the meaning here. And this is stuff is supposed to be pointing to Christ, and people have corrupted this so they can become rich and famous. Now let's look at the righteous response here. Look at verses 15 and 16. No more Mr. Nice Guy kind of thing. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them the animals out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers who were ripping the people off and overturned their table. So he's putting them out of business for the day. Now, he could vaporize the planet if he wanted to, but that's not his purpose here. 
He's making a point. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of the temple. I do not accept this. This is not legit. I don't know, do not approve this. And uh, I'm going to reject it visibly, undeniably. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop selling candy bars for the band on the church complex. That's not what he says. I don't think that's what he means. Uh, they're not ripping. They're they're not ripping you off. They're just trying to make money for you know, for the band. Stop stop making my father's house a place of merchandise. Um, hard to interpret this as Mister Rogers and Oprah. Am I right? Let me because he says it so much better than I can. Let me read from J. Dwight Pentecost's excellent book called "The Words and Works of Jesus Christ." On his arrival. At the beginning of his full-fledged public ministry, Jesus comes to the temple, uh, and in the forecourt, the temple of the Gentiles, a strange scene greeted his eyes. In those degenerate days, an unseemly practice prevailed in connection with the celebration of the Passover. Victims, these sacrificial animals were required, lambs for the Passover sacrifice as well as the offering of purification, bulls for the thanks offering, doves for the poor folks' offerings of purification, and the greedy priests had found here an opportunity for swelling their revenues. Ostensibly, which is a fun word to say, I can't spell it, for the convenience, I can't spell that one either, uh, of the worshipers, but really for their own enrichment, they had instituted a cattle market in the sacred court. It was an astute but great disgraceful trick, securing them both price and purchase since the victims which they sold in the court were immediately returned to them at the altar to be sacrificed. They had instituted a money market on a double pretext since many of the worshipers, Jews of the dispersion, came from distant lands and had only heathen money, which was reckoned unclean, they must... Uh, before they could purchase their offerings, exchange it into Jewish currency, right? Uh, among the litter, where did we get... You, you couldn't bring swords. Only the Roman soldiers who were supposed to keep uh, the peace could have swords. They kind of checked you for weapons before you went into the temple precincts because there was always the chance of a riot breaking out. Among the litter that uh, was over the court floor were pieces of rope, cast-off tethers, and baggage cords. Sounds like a dirty airport to me. And snatching up a handful of these and placing them in his hand, he herded the sheep and oxen out of the sacred precincts, Jesus. Then he assailed the money changers, overturning their temples and scattering their ringing coins all over the pavement. Uh, the doves in their coops could not be driven, and perhaps he had a feeling of tenderness for these offerings for the poor. He used no violence upon them, but bade their owners to carry them away. Make not, he cried, my father's house a market house and really a place where you can you can rip off the poor people. Uh, now, let me say one more thing and I'll start preaching again, as opposed to reading. Listen to somebody read. It's not ideal. But in this case, I think it's worthwhile. To some people who think Jesus is like Oprah and Mr. Rogers, right? Such an act on the part of Jesus seems out of keeping with his character. I mean... I thought he was just a nice guy. Uh, but a character incapable of indignation is destitute of righteousness. There is such a thing as righteous indignation, which is the only legitimate reaction to child molestation, right? And uh, 9-11, righteous indignation. Now, 
I'm so messed up, if I hold on to righteous indignation very much, I'm going to mess it up. That's why I think Ephesians says, be angry, but sin not. Don't let the sun, the sun go down in your wrath. If I hold on to it too long, I'm going to express it sinfully. But a a nation that no longer blushes because we have no moral standards that the culture accepts, really, a nation that can't have righteous indignation toward certain barbaric acts that certain, there aren't any method of suicide bombers, but there are other a small percentage of the larger whole that will do that, uh, is a nation in moral freefall. And so they read this and it doesn't line up with their conceptions. But a character incapable of indignation is destitute of righteousness without the will to give adequate expression to legitimate moral judgments. Here, there was almost the worst possible perversion of the holiest things, an offense the conscious would condemned would condemn in proportion to the conscious purity, and Jesus has a perfectly pure conscience, so he condemned it completely. Okay? Boom. This is the righteous response. And what I want to say to you here is think the lamb, we've already established he's the lamb, right? John the Baptist said that, is also the lion. That's interesting. He's both. He's not one or the other. Interesting. Isaiah, 700 B.C., um, who in chapter 53 describes in great detail the righteous sacrifice of the Savior in his resurrection, Isaiah 53, uh, earlier in his book, talks about when Messiah sets up his kingdom after his second advent, everything's going to change, nature's going to change, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. And I take that literally. I do believe that there's going to be a literal uh, earthly kingdom for a thousand years before we get to the best of all possible worlds is even going to be better. If you can believe that, because evil will have been permitted, defeated, and quarantined. But during the millennium, all of you animal... Phyllis, you're going to love the millennium. You're going to love it. And you're not going to need any bars at zoos because uh, you'll be able to play with cobras. Little children will play with cobras as pets. Don't try that now, right? Uh, but, uh, yeah, the lion is the lamb, and I think that's a good way to think about that. That's what's happening here for sure. Now, if this offends your conception of Jesus, you need to change your conception of Jesus because you've got a wrong conception of Jesus. Jesus is God, and God is true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just righteous, inherently morally perfect, and he has a right and an inherent uh, dynamic of expressing righteous indignation towards sins, including mine and yours. But this is a grievous error. It distorts the whole purpose of the temple complex, and he rejects it categorically, right? Look at uh, the positive response to the righteous response to Jesus by the disciples here. The disciples, and we know them from chapter 1, or John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, you got five right now, remembered that Psalm 69.9 talks about zeal. When we say God is a jealous God, it means he's zealous for righteousness. He wants you to have your best life, and your best life is, as the fruit of your salvation, a righteous life. Uh, zeal for your house will consume me. They realized uh, upon reflection this was exactly what the Messiah should do in response to this grievous uh, evil and error. Okay, Look at verse 18 through 22, the negative reaction of the religious leaders. Uh, somebody doesn't like everything. Right? Look at verse 18. 
the Jews. That's not talking about all the Jews and all the Jews are dirty and we need to kill them because they crucified Jesus. Actually, the Romans crucified Jesus. The Jews in the Gospel of John typically refers to the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders that had set up this system to rip people off and to get rich and famous then said to him, what sign, say Mayan, remember we talked last week, the first sign Jesus did, water and wine. What sign, what messiah, you'd have to be the Messiah to do this. And we don't buy that. We think you're a bad guy, not the Messiah, not the Savior. Uh, what miracle do you show us as to your authority to claim the right to condemn us for the way we're running the temple complex, right? Uh, they don't like Jesus. They are ordering him around but uh, they don't like the fact that he's demonstrating lordship over the temple. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Uh, English is such a clumsy language. I, I think that starting next week, we're all going to take in the next three years, we're going to learn New Testament Greek, and then we're going to really have Bible study. You think it's bad now? Wait till we do that. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, but it's interesting. Um, Nicole, if you'll look in... Uh, Verse 14, my English translation, New American Standard, says, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and ripping the people off. That's the word temple, T-E-M-P-L-E. And then you have Jesus saying in this English translation, verse 21, um, or verse uh, 19, destroy this temple. That's the same English word, right? But that's a little misleading because the word in um, verse Probably should have underlined that. Verse 14 is the word harion, and it means the whole temple complex, not just the building, but everything within kind of the, the temple mount and within those walls is the, the entire temple complex. But the word Dustin in 19 is naos, and it means sanctuary. It's used in the Septuagint for the Holy of Holies. It's the, the, the very most holy part of the temple building itself. And he says, destroy this naas, this sanctuary, this holy of holies. And he is a walking holy of holies, if you think about it. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, what's he talking about? See, King Herod has started a renovation project to make this whole area around the temple a show place to the world. They've been working on it for 46 years. They've got more time to, they haven't even finished the renovation project. And so, Listen, I would often say this, and this is a good example, Pam. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. Homer doesn't mean what he says. I don't always mean what I say. The Bible means what it means by what it says the way it says it. Homer means what he means by what he says the way he says it. It's ditto for me. So, you know, uh, destroy this temple. And he's standing in front of the temple. And he knows he's standing in front of the temple. And they're looking at him. And they've been spending a lot of their money renovating, you know, financing the renovation, and they're not done yet. And they're pretty impressed with what they've done to the building. It looks good, and it draws more people so they make more money, so it's all a good thing. It takes money to make money kind of thing. He says, destroy this naas. He's not talking about the building. Three days I'll raise it up. The Jewish leaders then said, it took us 46 years to get to this point in this renovation. This is the greatest thing going. And you're going to raise it up in three days? So they're taking him literally. This is the first time of many in the Gospel of John, John, as he remembers the things Jesus did, remembers he said something he knew they were going to misunderstand unless they really wanted to understand it and figure it out. He's going to tell Nicodemus next week, unless you're born again, how can I be born again? Go back to my mom's womb? It can't happen. Uh, 
Ask me, I'll give you living water. Living water, you don't even have a bucket. You have to get it. How can you get a bucket? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Unless you appropriate me. You know, he says stuff that you're, that's not at the third grade level. Jesus taught at higher than the third grade level, right? It's not easy, okay? You oversimplify stuff, you distort it. Um, he didn't want to do that. Destroy this temple. And they're going to use this against him. In Matthew, three years from now, they're going to say, he just said he's going to destroy the temple. Does he say he's going to destroy the temple? What does he say? He's not commanding that. He's It's a justice kind of thing, permissive. You can destroy this temple, and they will. They're going to try to they'll kill him. Three years I'll raise it up. It took us 46 years to build this temple. What are you talking about? You're going to raise it in three days? John, as he's writing this human author, verse 21, gives you a little help. And he's writing in like 69 or maybe even later, maybe 85 or 90 AD. But he was speaking of the temple of what? He's not talking about the physical temple that they're renovating, is he? What are you talking about? He's not thinking about his resurrection. I mean, he's not unaware. He doesn't have to wait until the Jewish leaders officially reject him to know what's going to happen. He's crucified before the foundation of the world. So, when he was raised up from the dead, three years later, and the disciples think about it, connecting the dots, his disciples remembered he said this from the very beginning, Katie, and they believed the scripture. They already believed it, but they were confirmed in their faith. It's a deeper faith. And they believed the word which Jesus had spoken. Man, you got to love that, don't you? This is a rendering of the temple complex in Jesus' day. And the word herion refers to everything in here. And they're selling animals here and here and over here and over there. And he's doing his thing out here when he puts them out of business for the day. But naos refers to the back part of the building, the Holy of Holies, Hagadoshim, right? And he's talking about that, talking about his body. Man, you got to love that. Um, and I love verse 22, right? Here's the principle. These people don't like Jesus. They think he's a bad guy. Julie, they're looking at him. He's the son of God incarnate, and they totally miss it. Uh, he was in the world. The world was made by him. The world did not know him. Came into his own. His own did not receive him, but to everyone who does receive him individually. Hope you've done that. Um, I figured this out a long time ago as an adult. Somebody doesn't like everything, and I put somebody, and sometimes I'm the somebody. I don't like everything either. <laughs> you know? Somebody doesn't like everything. If you, if, did Jesus please 100% of the people he interacted with? So how can you? You can't do it. I mean, it's impossible. So, so stop trying to do it. Some of us are pleasers, and that's, that's not a good way to live. Um, application of that principle, and I'm, I'm using app, you know, 20, I got into the 21st century like two weeks ago, so I'm enjoying it. App number one, the fact that somebody doesn't like X, whatever it is, which may include genuinely hurt feelings, I'll show you that works in a minute, does not automatically mean there's anything wrong with X. That happens all the time. Somebody doesn't like, Brad, somebody doesn't like X, change it. Why? I kind of like singing in church. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't like music or whatever. Uh, one guy didn't like music with a beat one time, and it was a problem, you know. Um, you know, that's evil. The notes are evil there. You know, there was actually a guy with a big ministry who saw certain notes were evil. That's like saying certain letters are evil because you can make obscene words out of letters. The, the problem is not with the letters. Although I've always been a little bit weirded out by Q myself. But that's just me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I actually like Q. Uh, app two. Selfish and or self-righteous somebodies tend to constantly vilify something so consider the source, okay? When somebody comes to me and says, I want to tell you what a jerk Dustin is, 
I do two things. Number one, have you talked to Dustin? No. Have you seen how big he is? Yeah, I, I do. And we're friends. We're like this. Uh, number two, you know, uh, if, so, if somebody third party says, hey, somebody said they don't like Dustin. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Somebody, this is somebody, somebody else. This is A saying B doesn't like Dustin. You know, I'll say, have you talked to Dustin? Have they talked to Dustin? No, probably not. And then I say, who's somebody? Because, you know, some people are always mad about somebody all the time. I just, somebody recently, uh, just a regular civilian, not a TBFer, was, was talking to me about church and stuff. And, uh, he was talking about serving on his board and he said, boy, this is as bad as high school, trying to deal with all the kind of whiners and people mad at everybody in church. And I said, we're, we're probably a more benign place than average, but, uh, you, know, you can't, you can't please everybody all the time. And, uh, some people just, you know, make it, uh, I think being mad about something all the time makes them feel important, gives them something to talk about, mainly about themselves. But you gotta consider the source there. Uh, this is the most important app, maybe three and four. Pre-decide not to become a somebody who always is trying to push your preferences on minor things on everybody all the time. And don't enable other people to constantly be like that. You know, if, if they're wanting to talk to you about third party, urge them to go to the third party if they won't do that. Uh, offer to go with them, so you can just sort it out. Uh, but you know, they never had disagreements, personality conflicts in the New Testament apostolic church, did they? Have you read Philippians? Urge? What does Paul say? I heard Euodia doesn't like Syntyche, and I heard Syntyche doesn't like Euodia. So this is going to be a major crisis for the church. I'm going to stop my missionary journey, and I'm going to go over there and fix it. You know what he says? Urge Euodia and Syntyche to get along. Just tell them to sit down, talk it out, and move on. You know, over and out. That's all I'm going to do with it, kind of thing. Uh, look at Titus 3 real quick. And like I said, there's no secret agenda here. If I force myself, I can think of a couple of people over 30 years that were just particularly hard to, to deal with. Uh, the ones I'm thinking about, I'm kind of like Jack Nicholas. He never, he can't remember a single putt that mattered he missed, even though he did miss a few that mattered, but he made most of them. Um, in my old days, I can't think of anybody who's here now who's in that category. But if I thought about it longer, I just won't. Oh, oh Ron, of course, but other than that. But um, listen, anytime you shine the light, you're going to attract some bugs, right? And we can't kick them all out. We try to love them into the kingdom or love them into the into the grace uh, thinking. Uh, sometimes they get, sometimes they don't. But he says, uh, reject foolish controversies in Titus 3, uh, verse 10. Reject a fatuous person, a person who's just unpleasable, who's always mad about something all the time because it makes them feel important, gives them something to talk about, after a couple of warnings, right? When such a person is perverted, sinning, self-condemned, and they're just going to bring the team down, and you can't just can't let that happen. Now, for a couple of minutes, I want to talk about happiness 101. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Okay, Sydney. Joy is the inner contentment of the soul that's abiding in Jesus Christ. And you can have, and sometimes it's just eye of the hurricane when you've got a, a personal crisis, a medical crisis, a financial crisis, other crisis, a, 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 a migraine headache. You can't be happy, but you can still have joy. Inner contentment of the, of the soul that's resting in Jesus Christ. It's the believer's birthright, but sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit too, right? Love, joy, peace. Uh, happiness is based on your happenings. It's based on positive, pleasant circumstances. So like once every 10 years, I'm happy for a whole day. Because once every 10 years on average, OSU beats OU on the gridiron. 
You know, you got to be tough to be an LSU fan. I'm just telling you, okay? So I'm happy when that happens. It doesn't happen often enough. But I make a distinction between happiness and joy. Here's happiness 101. A lot of people just unplug themselves from any possibility of happiness, and they may be as born again as Billy Graham was and is, but they just don't get it because they fall into this trap of this progression. And here's a progression that works even if you're dealing with righteous indignation, but quite often my anger and yours is probably more selfish stuff. Unfulfilled expectations, even if they're unbiblical and unrealistic and ridiculous, lead to hurt, disappointment, hurt and emotional pain. Hurt and emotional pain nurtured leads to anger. Anger incorrectly uh, expressed will lead to bitterness. Hebrews says, don't let a root of bitterness happen. Don't let somebody just undermine your church or your youth minister or your pastor because somebody said something about somebody and they're mad about everything anyway, but uh, you didn't check that out. And bitterness can lead to hardened hatred. The, the one the one bad thing about being a pastor in town like this for 30 years is without meaning to, you actually uh, generate a small number of people who just hate you for stuff you're unaware of or you know about that was very legit, and so and some are, some were in the church, some weren't. I've, I've got I've got students like that. I've got students that underachieved, disrespected other students. I had to call them down for playing with their fun and doing stuff. They've never made a C before, which I found hard to believe the one kid told me. And I thought it was a miracle I got I'm above the F level. And I thought I pulled a rabbit out of my hat. And you bump into these people at Walmart, and they just either will ignore you completely or glare at you, and they'll pull their phone and go, like that, you know. Um, one time I got a call from Ed Blount because somebody who got mad about something was standing at Walmart, which is the place you're going to see all TBFers, telling them what a jerk I was. And he called me very upset because he thought I was a jerk. And I said, no, I'm not really a jerk. In fact, X didn't happen, and I said, why? Because of this. He said, oh, okay, that's totally different. But anyway, some people can get so angry and so bitter, they develop a hardened hatred towards somebody or something, and they don't, and it goes on, and they won't let it go, and they can't remember why they got mad. They just know that you're no good. There might be reason for it. So that is not a good way to live. That, I, I don't read anywhere. The fruit of the Spirit is hardened hatred. Based on unrealistic expectations. That's not in there. It's not in the Bible at all. So walk through that. Unfulfilled expectations. Uh, you know, you've got to examine your expectations. Are they biblical? Are they legit? Uh, Joyce Landorf, this famous Christian author years ago, was, was really messed up because her father never appreciated her like he should have. And she, it really messed her up psychologically in many ways. Until she got mature enough to realize, hey, if he was physically blind, I wouldn't be hurt if he didn't compliment me if I got a new hairdo or got a new sweater. I realized that would not be realistic for me to expect him to see that. I finally decided, and he was unregenerate, he was incapable of seeing her good qualities. Now, that was a pity. That was terrible. God promises to make up for stuff like that, and he will. You know, she was an esteemed writer and Christian disciple maker and all this stuff. But she finally decided her problem wasn't the fact that the father didn't give what he couldn't give, what he didn't have. It was her expecting him to do it. It would have been, ideally, the father can do it. He couldn't. He wouldn't. So why should she be a prisoner of those unfulfilled expectations? This is happiness 101. 
Joy is spirit-driven. Sometimes it's just stability. It's not ecstatics necessarily. It's stability. But happiness is often unplugged because my or your unfulfilled expectations about marriage generally, about your spouse specifically, about your parents. Most teenagers, not Jack, but most teenagers go through this and they're living in the greatest technological... I mean, we got stuff Solomon couldn't even think of. I mean... Um, we've got all this stuff, and everybody's miserable because of step number one. But as you look at that progression, uh, the two key ones are, number one, check your expectations. Make sure they're reasonable and possible and biblical. And uh, you know, I've often said, you know, to get along with other Christians, you got to use the baptism technique. you got to hold your nose and lean way over backward, just like when we baptize people. You've got to do that in a local church. If you're expecting the ideal, you're never going to find it. But the real key uh, point is number three, the anger. Can anger be legitimate? Righteous indignation. Say yes. And we just see that in John 2. But most of the time for us, it's not. There's three things you can do with righteousness. You can blow up, yell, scream about the source of your unfulfilled expectations, even if they're impossible, even if they're unbiblical. People will do that. Or you can clam up. What's well, tough? The, the silent treatment? And yet, men find out after they get married, you know, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Uh, what, do you, what do you want me to do? Nothing. What's wrong? You know, they, you know, there's something wrong there, right? The teenagers do that to you, too. Now, notice the clam up which a lot of us men actually do, that's kind of my tendency, is a glide path to ulcers and or heart attacks, just so you'll know, okay? It's easier to teach, preach this than to do it. I'm going to be in trouble when I get home because he's going to say, man, you've blown all five of those many times. Probably have. Uh, legitimate anger, be angry, but don't let the sin go down. No, don't let the sin, don't let the sin or the sun go down in your wrath because if you hold it long enough, you're deprived enough. You, Still got a sin nature. Wise up. Calm down before the Lord. Just humble yourself before the Lord. Lower your expectations to be realistic. Evaluate them prudently and go from there. And watch this. If you need to talk to the source of your unmet expectations, use I language over you language. Okay? This is from a secular textbook, but I think it's helpful. I think it's biblical. Uh, rather than saying to your teenage son, you're, worth, you're a worthless, stupid idiot, and I'm totally disappointed with you because you're doing badly. You might have be in Dr. McCoy's class or something like that, right? That's not a good way to go. What you want to say is, rather than saying you, 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 you want to say, sounds like it's selfish, but it's not. I feel like you don't respect me and your mother, and you don't really care about your future when you get way behind at school, and rather than talking to Dr. McCoy and finding out, do I tell him exactly what I want, Dustin? Say yes. I mean, he'll tell you. I tell. I, I just line it right up. I put it on a T, don't I? Pretty much. Uh, I, I, and this is so much more effective because this is really what you want the, the kid or the person to understand where you're coming from. I feel like you don't respect me or your mother or all the money and effort we're putting in on this and don't really care about your future when you get behind at school and don't talk to me about it or don't talk to me and then talk to the teacher about it. That kind of thing. Uh, husbands, that's gold. Don't say you, 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 you. Say, I feel like X. The wife might say, I feel like, I feel like I'm totally unloved when you don't call me when you're going to be three hours late from work. I mean, 
I mean, in my mind, I, I would never, if I'm told her I'm going to be home at 4.30, I'm going to be at home at 4.30 plus or minus 30 minutes, and I'm not. And listen, you don't even have to talk to them anymore. Just text them. Is that great? Yeah, it's awesome, you know. Yeah. So don't miss this from the passage. After thousands of years and hundreds of prophecies, the Messiah arrives in Jerusalem, beginning his public ministry, and finds a spiritually blind, bloated religious bureaucracy focused on ritual over relationship with God, the letter of the law and salvation by human merit, generating big money for the religious leaders. It's totally corrupt. It's totally wrong. Jesus reacts to that with righteous indignation, making a visible, undeniable statement of his rejection of this illegitimate status quo, which is the mess we went in in Latin, right? And confirms his right to do so as the Messiah by predicting his resurrection from the dead, which will follow his substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross. Does that three years before it happens. Take this to heart from the passage. Uh, the good guy explanation of Jesus will not fly. Uh, because a good guy wouldn't turn the tables over and get some ropes and sh- sh- get the animals out of the way. This is not Mr. Rogers-like behavior. And C.S. Lewis famously said, that's the one thing you can't logically say about Jesus. He was a nice guy. He will not allow you to say that. There's three logical things you can do with Jesus. He was a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He was a liar. That's logically possible, but uh, he claimed to be the Messiah, but he wasn't. But he's the only religious leader in the world who doesn't just claim to be, to show the way, but to be the way. That's why we changed the lyric, right? And predicts his own substitutionary death and resurrection, and then he fulfills it. Nobody else has done that. So, um, that's, he's not lying. He's a lunatic. He thought he was the Messiah. A lot of people think they're Napoleon or Jesus or, you know, Hitler. They think they are. They're psychotic. Uh, that's one explanation. That's logical. But it's not uh, possible. Uh, he's the resurrected Lord. He's the issue and issuer of eternal life. That's who he is. That's who he claims to be. He's in total control of this whole situation from the get-go. He's very much aware of his destiny and his purpose. And he's the purpose-driven Messiah. Trust in him. Abide in him. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, draw us closer to our Lord Jesus Christ as we reflect on his character his words and his works, and give us wisdom to be more like him in uh, drawing real moral lines in our lives and in not clinging to unrealistic, unbiblical expectations about reality or about everybody else. I pray your Holy Spirit would uh, impress practical implications and applications of this truth in each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.